want to reiterate that you are probably a lot more prepared for industry than you think that you are, if that's the path that you want to go to. Um, you know, analytics, technical skills, that's great. You're still going to have to learn more when you get there. Um, sorry, it's the way it is. Yeah. Um, but you already have a lot of the great building blocks. You can take feedback. You can work with other people well if you work in research labs. Um, you are able to iterate on projects. Um, typically, you're going to work well with other people. Like you already have the great fundamentals there. So you're going to be fine. Like I promise it's going to be okay. Hey, folks, thank you for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my new friend, Sydney Cyber. Sydney Cyber is a PhD candidate in industrial organizational psychology and works in people analytics as a consultant in an industry setting. Sydney joins the podcast to talk about how she knew she wanted to go into industry before she went to grad school what her role as a people analyst consultant is like, and how current grad students can prepare for a career in industry while still in grad school. If you're in the social sciences or do human-focused research generally, and you want to find your place in the business world after grad school, you will get a lot out of today's episode. I'm so excited to be able to share my conversation with Sydney with you today. Be sure to stick around to the very end to hear Sydney's responses to the bonus questions. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, Sydney, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you. Could you start us off with just an introduction as to who you are professionally? Yeah, of course. So my name is Sydney Siver. Um, I am currently a PhD candidate at Wayne State University, which is in Detroit. Um, but I am living in Atlanta and I'm working remotely. And I work full time as a people analytics consultant for Ultimate Kronos Group. It's generally referred to it as UKG. Um, and they are a software company that does like human capital management software. So think things like payroll, taxes, scheduling, time off, PTO, performance management, anything HR, we tend to make a product for it. Very cool. Very interesting. Uh, and I can already think of questions to ask you about your job, but let's pause that in my mind for now and start mm -hmm. with grad school. Why did you decide to go to grad school? Uh, yeah, so I always knew from a very young age that I was going to go to grad school. I didn't necessarily know the field or what I was going to study, but school was never that difficult for me. Um, everyone was always saying, oh, you know, you're so smart. You're so smart. You're going to go to college. You're going to go all the way. And so I think that's just something I always internalized. And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. Or I just knew I was going to go all the way if I could. Um and I didn't actually find what I ended up studying until the end of my junior year of college. I went through a bunch of different majors and bounced around, and then I finally found psychology. But I think the first career path that I really seriously pursued was actually to be a large animal veterinarian because, again, like I love horses. We talked about mm -hmm. that a little bit. Um, and I went to the University of Georgia for my undergrad because they have a really good veterinary school, and I thought, okay, if I can get in the door there, start learning an undergrad level, and then I can go to their veterinary school. Um, that didn't work out because chemistry is really difficult, and I realized I'm way too squeamish to ever deal with anything, blood mm. and guts, human, animal, not for me. Um, bounced around a little bit, went to a business major. Again, you know, those weed out classes, those intro classes, not good. I was always good at, you know, math, so algebra, calculus, statistics. Then I got to accounting one, realized that was not going to work out because that just, I've never studied so hard for a test in my life. And I legitimately got like a 50% on that. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. That class had like maybe two tests and those were the majority of the grade. And I said, well, this is not going to work out because you have to pass this class to be in this major. Um, and so then I was like, well, what do I really enjoy? Like, what do I want to do at this point? I'm already two years into undergrad. I have a scholarship. I have to graduate on time. I can't afford to go any longer. Um, and then realized, well, psychology is pretty cool. I can probably figure something out with that. 
um, ended up loving that. I added on a second major in sociology because the core coursework was very similar. So I was able to kind of do both at once. Um, so I got double majors in that. And through that, one of my undergraduate courses was an introductory um, industrial organizational psychology course. And so I got you know, my foot in the door with that. I realized I really liked that subject. Um, there were some graduate and undergraduate research labs going on because they have a PhD program at UGA for IOPsych and started working in one of those to get some research experience and the rest is history. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I was just remembering I went to you. We talked earlier. I went to UHGA for my PhD and I, I knew some of the professors in psych. Um, but honestly, most of them were on the counseling side, not the IO side. But um, so that's so interesting. So what was your experience as a grad student like in IO psychology? It sounds like it was a little different from yours. Um, but honestly, for the most part, it was really good. Um, IO psychology is one of those things where we take a very scientist practitioner model to education. So you know, obviously there's the academic side and you have to learn the research and the theory. That's the scientist part. But the practitioner part is also like, okay, well, what are the real world implications of this? And what are you going to do about it? How are organizations going to use this research or this theory? And how is it going to help people? Because people mm -hmm. actually spend the majority of their lives at work. And work, if it's not going well, it's a big source of stress for you. Um, maybe you know, the hours suck, that's stressful. You don't have a good relationship with your manager, that's stressful. Maybe the work itself is really boring and you just hate it. So then you're spending most of your day, most of your years bored. Um, so I really knew from the beginning, I didn't love academia. I didn't love research. I didn't love that whole publish or perish lifestyle that professors mm. have to go through to get tenure. Um, so I just always knew that I was, I didn't know what I was going to do with it because we can do a lot of different things with an IO degree, but I knew that I was going to go into industry for sure. Very cool. And before we get any further, could you take a moment to just explain for folks who aren't familiar what, what IO uh, psychology is all about and what INO actually stand for? Oh yeah, of course. Um, I got so excited because you've actually heard of it before. No one usually has. Um, yeah. So IO psychology stands for industrial organizational psychology. Um, and there are two sides to it, the I side and the O side. The I side stands for industrial and the O side is organizational. And the industrial side is more like assessing individuals, I guess is the best way to say it. So we're trying to figure out, um, you know, how to create assessments. What's the best way to hire someone? What's the best way to recruit them? How do you um, measure their performance and design performance management scales, that kind of thing. And the O side is more, I'll say like a little macro level, um, less on the micro individual level. So we're studying like organizational systems, things like work-life balance and well-being, um, rewards and motivational systems, uh, leadership and leadership development, um, training, all that good stuff. Group and team dynamics, that's a thing too. Um, yeah. Lots of good stuff. We tend to work a lot in either um, consulting or within actual organizations, but typically in the human resources department in some hmm. way, shape, or form. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, sorry if you already said this, but are, are you, were and are you more attracted to the I part or the O part? I, <laughs> I bounced around a little bit, so... <laughs> Um, I think originally when I started out, I really liked the I side because that tends to be a little more analytical and a lot more, you know, statistics heavy measurement focused. Um, and I still do love statistics to this day. I think that's been the one constant and that's why I'm doing what I do now. Um, but I also bounced around a little bit. I really liked leadership development. I thought studying telework and remote working was really cool at one point. And I think that's something that would fall more on the O side. Um, I think I was always one of those students, you know, I think you get into grad school and everyone kind of has their thing. They have their major professor or their advisor and they follow along in their footsteps and they study what they study. And that's part of your identity a little bit. And I always feel like I was missing that because I liked it all. It was all interesting to me, but in the same vein, I also didn't love any of it enough to really think that was my thing. But the thing that I was really good at and that could be applied to pretty much anything was the statistics part. 
Very cool. Hmm. So I'm trying to figure out where to go next. So I think something unique about, and obviously this is discipline specific, so disclaimer. Mm -hmm. um, but I think something that unique uh, that we talked about before we started recording is that you knew you wanted to go to industry before, was it before you even went to grad school? Mm -hmm. Before you even went to grad school. And so that, I, I think for some people, they, you know, they know that. Um, I think for, for me and for, I don't know, maybe half, I don't want to say numbers, but for a good amount of people, they go in and they, you know, they don't know. They're looking at the professor life. They're thinking, oh, maybe that could be interesting. Um, what was it like to be a grad student who knew from the get-go that you were going to go to industry and not go into academia? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it probably really is your area of study specific because a lot of people in my cohort and my program wanted to go industry from the beginning and that's mm. fine. That's normal. I actually think the people who wanted to be professors and stay in academia were the minority. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's because like the job market is changing and there's not a lot of jobs available in academia or, you know, I think it's just, IO psychology is a really cool field and we can do a lot yeah. of things. And I think a lot of us are really excited about actually doing practical work in organizations and not all of us necessarily want to sit in that ivory tower and just, you know, write papers all day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, sidebar, when, <clears throat> whenever I was hopping on the industry job market, when I got fed up with academia, um, IO psych was one of the main degrees that kept on coming up that I saw for the jobs that I was looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, I think it makes, you know, makes a ton of sense how aligned it is with industry. And then, like you said, so many people um, go into IO already knowing that they're going into industry. So mm -hmm. um, just very different than my grad school experience. But uh, I think it's Yeah, really and I cool. think there are still some people that, you know, they probably get into grad school and they don't know necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think I knew from the get-go just because I was lucky enough to have that undergraduate exposure to IO psych. Um, not every university has an undergraduate course for IO psych. Um, not every university has a IO psych graduate or PhD program. And IO psych is not really something that's talked about in like your psychology 101 courses. If you look in most of those textbooks, it's going to talk about like social psychology and clinical psychology. And it's actually very common as I've been talking to people with backgrounds similar to mine where you think, oh, you know, I like psychology. I'm going to go into clinical or counseling or something because that's all you really know. And then some way or another, you figure your way into IO psychology and you're like, oh, this is what I really want to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, when during your grad program did you get a sense of the role that you wanted to play in an industry setting? Um, so I kind of fell into it, to be honest. Um, so I mentioned that statistics was kind of the thing that I always gravitated to. Um, my master's thesis was on essentially statistics. It was comparing and contrasting two different ways to handle your missing data when you have surveys, because we know people don't always fill out all of the surveys and all of the questions. Um, and my PhD program at Wayne State has a uh, student-led consulting group. We call it APORG. Um, don't ask me what it actually stands for, Applied Psychology Something Something Group. Um, but we work with organizations, typically it's in the Detroit area, um, for whatever kind of projects they need. It could be anything from like competency modeling to designing assessments to whatever. Um, but these organizations get PhD level work because we are supervised by a professor but it's a lot cheaper than if they were to go hire an actual consulting firm. And so I took advantage of one of those projects. I want to say my third year of my PhD program. Um, and I was actually working for Quicken Loans. They've now rebranded and now they're Rocket Mortgage, but it was a six week long program where I was actually going into their office and I was working with their talent management team because they were trying to put together competency models for like, quite literally all of the jobs that they have within Wiccan Loans. It was a crazy amount, like two, 3,000, something like that. Um, so it took a bit of time, 
And through that project, I got to get to know them and build relationships with them. And this was taking place in the springtime, like March-ish. And so we don't have assistantships during the summer. We have a little bit, but not as much as you would have during the actual school year. And I don't know about you, but I still had rent to pay. I wanted to eat food during the summer. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And so I was actually applying to uh, summer internships and I was applying to a few at Quicken Loans because they have a really awesome um, intern program. And I applied for some, I don't even remember the intern position, but it was an intern level position. And someone picked up my resume and said, hey, we remember you, you know, we really liked you. We actually have this full-time opening on this other team. Would you be interested in a full-time opening? And I was like, oh, so I can actually have a real salary And it came at a good time because I was turning 26, aging off of my parents' health insurance plan. I didn't have to go on the crappy student health insurance, which was great. So I said, yeah, of course, sign me up. Um, And that was kind of my first big girl job, I guess, was working there. Um, I will say I was still, I was not ABD at that point. So it was a little earlier than normal. Um, I don't think any professors explicitly told me, no, you can't do this. Like, I think they understood that I had a need for money and things and like, Mm. it's nice to just have a job in a real life. Um, but I still had classes to take. I hadn't even finished my coursework and luckily I only had one class each semester. So it was pretty easy to manage. It was only one class meeting per week, one day a week. Um, and Quicken Loans was really nice with flexible scheduling. We still had to commute and go into the office every day, but I was able to do like half days at on the Wayne State campus and then the other half at the office, for example. That's awesome. So, <clears throat> so what happened next? So you, you've got this job with uh, Quicken Loans. You still got some coursework. I'm sure that was interesting to juggle. Did you still have an assistantship during that time? No, I did not. I had the assistantship, I believe, you know, while I was doing that consulting, student consulting project, and then that ended over the summer. And then I just didn't pick up another one because I was working full time. For sure. Totally makes sense. Uh, so what happened next? You you got through your uh, the rest of your courses and then I assume mm-hmm. started your dissertation work. Yeah. So, gosh, I worked at Quicken Loans for, I don't know, maybe six, seven months and then COVID hit. Mm. Um, so everything came, went, you know, remotely online coursework was online. Um, we ended up doing our qualifying exams online, um, which that's actually an interesting story. We should circle back to that because I actually failed my first round of qualifying exams. I think a lot of people don't talk about that, but it does happen. Um, but when COVID hit, I realized, you know, everything is going remotely. I think I only had one more class to finish up and that was going to be online. So I said, you know, I, Detroit is fine. You know, I don't want to say any bad things about Detroit. It just wasn't for me. The weather was awful. I'm not a cold weather person. I Mm. had moved to Michigan, not knowing a single soul in the state. And it was just a lonely environment for me personally. So I decided I was going to move back down to Atlanta. Um, I said, you know, it's the same time zone. We're doing everything only anyway. You know, I didn't even ask for permission. I just kind of said I was going, to be honest. Um, and that ended up working fine for a few months. Um, Quicken Loans was supportive of that, but then they were saying, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic right now. Everything is fine, you know, working remotely, but there might come a time when we want everyone to come back into the offices in Detroit. And I said, well, do you know when that's going to be? And they said, no. And I said, okay, um, I think I might start looking for other jobs now because that doesn't sound comforting and I would like yeah. to, you know, keep earning money. Um, so then I ended up finding a couple months later, it was December, 2020. At that point I had finished my qualifying exams, finished classes, and I found another job, which was full-time remote doing like, I don't even remember what my actual job title was, probably something generic like human resources data analyst, but it was for a wholesale grocery company. And I was working specifically with training data for the employees that work in the warehouses of the grocery distributors. So we were redesigning the training program, and then I was creating the metrics and collecting the data to make sure that the training was actually working, um, which was really interesting. But I didn't last long there because it was just such a, what's the right word? They're not exactly like cutting edge in that industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
it was a little boring for me. Um, it became one of those things where I would collect all the data, do all the analysis. It was basically the same thing every week. Um, and I'd be done by Tuesday and then I'd kind of sit around waiting like, Hey, does anyone need anything? You know, I'm not getting any emails. What's happening. And that was cool for a little bit. Cause you know, you're still getting paid your salary, but sure. you're just kind of sitting on your butt on your couch. Like, what are you going to do next? Um, so that didn't last long. And I started looking for other opportunities. And then that's when I came across my current role, um, at UKG. Very cool. How does your uh, dissertation fit into to this story or this timeline? <laughs> um, so that's also an interesting thing, and we can talk about that more too. Um, so I finished my exams, I'm qualifying exams, classes, December 2020. I took all of 2021 off. I just said, I'm burnt out. I'm tired. You know, I'm working full time. I just moved across the country. I don't really want to do this right now. And so luckily my advisor was really cool about that. And he said, that's, that's fine. You know, we'll keep in touch, keep thinking of opportunities and, you know, ideas and things to do for it. Don't let it completely fly, fly out of your brain, but you know, that's okay. Um, so then that year ended and I'm, I'm really glad that I did that for myself because then as soon as January hit, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's get this done. Let's finish this degree. Um, cause I knew if I didn't actually start working on it, then I might be one of those people who just never finishes and I don't want that. Um, but also my advisor then decided to let me know that he was going to be leaving the university. He found another position at one in Texas. Um, and I think he was moving just for like personal family reasons, you know, I get it, but they still have not replaced him yet. I know they've been interviewing, um, at one point there was an offer out and I just haven't heard anything. So right now I'm advisorless. I am trekking along on my own. I do have an idea that I'm working on. It's very much draft form. Um, I think I have like 20 pages written so far. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with the dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, when I was in grad school and I've heard this from many other people, but when I was in grad school, I had several of my, uh, friends and colleagues who had their professors just leave the institution mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. And, uh, it, it really, for some of them, it like really derailed them because they're, you know, their whole research. I mean, some of them were like academically oriented and their whole research trajectory was like up in the air. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that's is quite an I, obstacle. Yeah. I think that's another reason I'm very glad I took that year off because yeah. if I had plugged along and I was a year farther into my dissertation and then my advisor decided to leave, Mm -hmm. That sucks. I either have to start all over with a new advisor and a new idea, or I have to try to figure out some way to work with a different professor on the same idea that might not be the research topic. Like, yeah. You, that's awful too. Yeah, that's a tough one. So could you tell me a little bit more about your, your current job? You're working in people analytics, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So people analytics is like the data analyst team that typically is sitting within HR because I would say 90% of the data that we deal with is our employee data. Um, so we have things like, you know, headcount, attrition, um, performance rating. We have a bunch of demographic information. So yes, that encompasses things like gender, ethnicity, all those protected EEO classes, but it's also just generic things like your job name and your job level and the division you work in and just kind of like where you are in the organization. Um, we also deal with a lot of survey data. So the team that I'm on right now is in the larger employee experience team. And we have a part of our team that is the employee listening team. And so they deal with all of the like annual engagement surveys or the exit surveys and exit interviews, um, onboarding, recruiting surveys, and then a bunch of just random one-off surveys as the business needs. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What uh, what skills did you learn in, or are you still learning in grad school that you think make you really valuable in this kind of a position? Um, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's the obvious, you know, data analysis and research skills. I think one thing that people really should focus on, and they probably don't even realize the value of it while they're doing it, but is teaching presenting, you know, mm -hmm. building that presence, being able to take these 
complex ideas and break them down into layman's terms, like you're doing with your undergraduate students who are half asleep at 10 in the morning in their sweatpants and you're trying to excite them and get them to understand what you're talking about. Um, I think that's really, really underrated. And that's something that has taken me far. Um, you know, anyone can, well, not anyone, but most people, if you're smart enough and you have the drive to, you can go online and Google, like, how do I learn SQL? Like, how do I learn R or Python? And that's definitely valuable and something you should do if you don't know it already. But it's that extra, that extra human touch. I think that's something that organizations don't see a lot in data analysts. And that's something that they really want and need. It's interesting. What other skills do you think stand out for? So I guess a little background. Uh, I, I just got a job as a data analyst at a healthcare company. Um, and I, I, I've really, over the last year, I kind of, I really nerded out because I was like, I'm going to go into industry. I have to pick some kind of like, you know, realm to go into, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I have this kind of like random eclectic assortment of skills from being a therapist and a researcher and an analyst and program evaluator and whatnot. Um, and anyway, I ended up in data analytics and I'm, I'm glad I did. I like what I'm doing. What do you think for a lot of grad students who let's say they're interested in going to data analysis and they have some skills, but maybe mm -hmm. their degree didn't perfectly set them up for that career. What are like the top, like, three or five skills that you think these grad students should put together in order to be competitive for these kinds of positions? Yeah. So I think like technical skills wise, um, if you are going into people analytics specifically, you can still find companies that use SPSS. Um, I think that they are starting to move away from that though, just because there's things like R and Python, which mm. are free and open source. Um, so I don't think you necessarily need to know, like, you don't need to know SAS and R and Python, like hundred percent, um, just know the basics of at least one language. I think a lot of job postings that I see, they say, you know, proficiency in R or Python or, you know, similar coding language. So whatever you're most comfortable in, if you have some previous experience in it, go with that one. I think it will be fine either way. Um, I think if you can work on your data visualization skills, that's not something that I ever learned in grad school. You know, a lot of it is black and white APA style correlation matrices and yeah. regression weight <laughs> tables. And um, I remember when I first started working, I kind of thought like, yeah, I'm going to have to explain, you know, what beta weights are. Like, I'm sure they probably don't know that, but it'll be fine. Like, this is good. And I put together a PowerPoint and it was just showing a bunch of that stuff. And I showed it to my manager and she was like, no, you can't, <laughs> you can't do this. Um, so that was a big learning curve for me was really, you know, how do you take this complex information, pare it down into one or two sentences, something that, you know, your mother or your brother, whoever has no background knowledge of this can understand yeah. and then put it in a PowerPoint that looks good and tells the story and is compelling and makes you want to look at it even more. Um, I'm not an expert in that by any means. That's something that I continuously work on. Um, but I think that is one thing that draws me into this kind of work because you're constantly having to learn and upskill and mm -hmm. stay up to date on, you know, the new technologies, the new tools. Um, if there's new analyses that are coming out, um, just staying up to date, you know, like you can't just say, okay, well, I learned R in 2017 and that's good. Well, R is constantly being updated. They're constantly adding yeah. new packages. Like that's not going to work. You're going to have to keep learning and keep upskilling. Yeah, that is so true. Um, I I feel like it's great that we're touching on this. I had another uh, podcast interview that I did earlier today. And one of the things me and that guest were talking about is I get the impression and I had this experience. So I assume that everybody had it because I'm egotistical, but um you know, once you get that PhD, there's this kind of feeling of like, you've arrived. And I think in some sense, you have arrived because you know, you've, you've basically gotten beat up for several years, and left out to dry. And you've had to figure out how to do these things on your own, create this really complex, dense product called the dissertation, and get people to, you know, rubber stamp it and let you move on. And 
there's I, I feel like there's this sense of like I'm done learning and oh my god that's so not true and mm-hmm. especially for um for folks who make the let's say there are folks out there who they go into their first academic job in some senses my experience was that I was pretty well prepped for my first for my research scientist position certainly I had to learn new things and I had to stretch myself in ways I didn't as a grad student but I didn't have to like upskill a whole lot necessarily. And in the transition from research scientist to data analyst, completely different fields, completely different, you know, uh, completely different understandings of what the, the, why you're doing data analysis, how you do it, the, the purpose it serves in the larger scheme of things. It's like, I'm starting over and wow, the humility that I did not expect to be feeling for that is, uh, quite palpable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, being open to being a beginner again, I feel like is, is just so important. Um, yeah, but I think people who have gone through grad school, you know, you're, you're well prepared in that aspect though, because you've spent years and years learning, um, iterating on different projects. You've spent years, you know, getting feedback. Um, hopefully some of it is nice and positive, but I think a lot of it is maybe not. Um, so, you know, that kind of gives you a bit of a thick skin too, which I think is definitely valuable because that's going to keep happening no matter what career path you go in. Um, yeah. I mean, I think grad students, we all suffer a bit from imposter syndrome and I, I still have it. I don't know about you. It doesn't just go away overnight. Um, but you have more skills and give yourself more credit than you are. Like, you are okay. <laughs> you're going to do well. Um, you're a smart person. You can work hard. You can iterate. You can take feedback. Like those are all the core, uh, components of being a good employee in any way, shape or form, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Any grad students who are listening, who are feeling, you know, apprehensive or fearful about the transition to industry, I feel like you should take that to heart. So Sydney, uh, did we cover your story up until today's point? Yeah, yeah, for the most part. Yeah, so you're still still kind of working on your dissertation. Um, mm-hmm. Things are a little in limbo with who's going to be your advisor, but you've got this great career in people analytics. Oh, one question I did have before I go into just, you know, rapid fire random questions was, so I, I recall the, yeah, the Quicken Loans job. You had, it was an internship or you did a project with them before as a student? It was a six week like student consulting project. And then I got hired full time a couple weeks later. Okay, great. Uh, So I feel like, uh, yeah. So for the job after that, and then the job you currently have, what do you think are the things that like really stood out that made you the best candidate for those positions? Um, gosh, I think, huh, I'll have to ask my manager that. I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) I think a lot of it is like actually your technical schools. I think, you know, I think about this a little bit because I have a younger brother who just graduated high school and he is not as academically inclined as I am or I was at that age. And so he's taking a gap year and trying to figure out what he wants to do. Hmm. Um, and I'm I'm proud of him for that because I think wherever he lands, he's going to do well and he's going to know that he likes it and has a purpose there. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I think that he is under the impression that, you know, in today's day and age, you don't necessarily have to have a degree to be successful. And that's true to some extent. Um, I don't, you know, I'm sitting here trying to get a PhD and I don't think everyone needs a PhD. You probably don't even need a bachelor's degree for some things, Mm. but there are still people and organizations and jobs that do value it. So I do think my PhD is valuable in that aspect. So technical skills for sure. Um, and then I think just, you know, being a nice person, working hard, um, and like I say, like the presentation skills, the people skills really, taking things down to a simple level as you can, that will take you so far. I would, 
I would argue even more so than your degree or your technical skills. Um, mm-hmm. That might be what's on the resume that grabs their attention immediately and puts you in that interview. But that's really what's going to take you past the interview and get hired. Um, I've done a few interviews in the past where they're wanting you to, you know, prepare an analysis prior to the interview and then present it to them. And one, I mean, yes, they're looking at the rigor of the analysis and can you do the math and actually do the thing that's required of you in the job. But a lot of what they're actually looking for is your presentation skills. And can you explain how this research or this analysis would be useful to them or to other organizations? That will take you so far. Yeah. I think that's one thing that, at least in my field, you know, you're writing a research article or you're reading a research article and you get to the discussion section and it's like limitations and future directions. And we tend to have a practical implications section, but really all it's like, you know, oh, like organizations should consider this bias when doing this, or they should create a training for this. And that's kind of where it ends. And it's like, well, maybe sure, but there are a lot of other things that organizations are doing and can do and should do. And, you know, just writing that little basic one or two liner in there is not really going to cut it. Like that's not practical implications for them. That's not what they want to hear. Yeah. So true. Uh, Before I get into more practical questions, uh, I was wondering, you mentioned something about your qualifying exam. Um, Mm -hmm. what was that like? Yeah. So I got my master's degree prior to going to Wayne state. And so I was able to transfer a couple of course credits. So I was finishing up all of the major courses that were required to take before your qualifying exams, um, a little bit more so than the other students that were in my cohort. So I was actually taking my qualifying exams year before them. And I was taking it with the students who were in the year above me, um, did not go so well. I had just started working at Quicken Loans like two months prior. So I was adjusting to, you know, doing that hour commute each way, working in an office and then trying to study for qualifying exams. And it was a lot. And I think I, um, thought that I was going to be able to handle it. And I could not because I showed up on that day and I was very, very unprepared um, compared to everyone else. And I was like, you know, it's fine. Like they want me to pass. They don't want to fail students in your qualifying exams. So no, like the essays that I'm writing are probably not going to be as good or as long as the other students, but like, it's fine. I I got the core concepts. I'll be okay. Was not okay. (laughs) Got the email that, you know, I was the only one out of the what, six or seven of us that failed, um, was absolutely mortified Um, and you know, they know that you failed because we're all texting each other on a text chain, like, oh, we got the results in, we passed, we passed, congrats. And, you know, I'm faced with that decision. Do I not say anything and maybe just pretend I don't have my phone and I didn't see it. So that way I don't have to respond. Or do I just own up to it? Because they'll probably see me in the hallway and ask me in person. And then that's even worse. I have to tell them in person that I failed. Um, so yeah, I went through and I just, I said, Hey, you know, I, didn't pass. And then you could, it was kind of funny because looking back, the text chain died really quickly after that. Mm -hmm. Um, but then my advisor, you know, he gave me a few days just to like, you know, lick my wounds and chill out. Um, and then he called me on the phone and we were talking about it. And I just remember I was so embarrassed. I felt so awful. I was just like bawling on the phone. Um, I was saying, you know, I'm not smart enough for this. I'm not good enough for this. I should just drop out. Um, he was like, you know, no, don't do that. You know, just sleep on it. You're going to be fine. You know, you're not the only one who has failed and you won't be the last one who has failed. Um, and I said, you know, I'm not going to quit this semester. It was, I think maybe September, October at this point. And I said, I'll finish out classes until December. I'm not going to quit in the middle of a course. But I said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to think on it for the semester. I'm going to take the semester and think I'm not going to do any research. I'm just going to work. I'm going to do my class and I'm going to think on it. And he respected that. And he said, okay, he's like, I'll let you think. And you let me know when the semester is over what you decide to do. And I respect him so much for doing that because I mm-hmm. think if he was, you know, up my butt all the time saying, Hey, what did you decide? what did you decide? I probably would have said, I'm going to leave, yeah. <laughs> but he didn't. And so I, I stuck it out and they let you retake your qualifying exams um, within a year. 
you have two opportunities to do it, um, but you have to redo it within a year. Um, so I did that. I redid it. Um, at this point, I had moved back to Atlanta. I was you're doing everything remotely. So I'm not sure if it was the different environment where you're like at home, it's remote, it's chill instead of being in like a like structured exam room with other students and we're all on the computers typing and you're just everyone's stressed out and you're feeling all that stressful energy. Um, but I did a lot better that time. I was more prepared. I had been through it. I knew kind of the format and the questions that were going to be asked. And I did my due diligence this time with studying um, and it turned out a lot better. But I wanted to bring that up on this podcast because I don't think people talk about their failures a lot. Um, I think, I mean, I had a great relationship with my cohort and the year above me, but it is a, it's a little competitive. I'm not going to lie, right? Like it's a different environment than when I was getting my master's degree. Um, and I think people always want to present the best versions of themselves, right? It's natural. People do that all the time. But it's really difficult to talk about your failures and bring that up. And when a failure happens to you, you obviously know about it because it happened to you. But, you know, the other person down the hallway who failed this paper or, you know, got really bad feedback on something or, you know, their paper got thrown out, didn't get accepted for a journal or what have you. Like, they're not really going to talk about that and you're not going to know about it. So then you're going to feel like, you're the bad one and you're the one that's failing. And that's not true. Um, we're all failing. We just, we don't talk about it. So yeah. I wanted to bring that up because I was actually listening to the podcast with um, Allie, the episode you did with her. Hmm. And she brought up the fact that she failed a um, research proposal or something of that nature. And I was like, oh my God, we're, I'm not alone. You know, like I yeah. failed something too. It was a big setback. So I was really happy to hear her talk about that. Um, and I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, just because you fail, it doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. It's not going to mean you're never going to get hired. Um, it's not going to mean that the other students who don't fail, they might fail in the future. Like they're not perfect. They're not completely set up for a fail proof life. Um, so it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing up and being willing to share about it. I, I do remember um, Allie's story, and if anyone wants to go listen to it, I believe it's episode two. Um, I was I was there uh, after she failed. I believe it was her dissertation proposal, like she, the proposing of the idea for her dissertation. And I was there because um, I just happened to be in the building, you know, where the meeting room was. And, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it was kind of like tense because she did not expect to fail her, her advisor. I, I think didn't expect to get as much negative feedback from some other people. And, um, and yeah, it was kind of awkward. And, and the thing with, with failure, I think particularly in academia, I think it really shows the quality of your mentor. Like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, like like their character coming out because you know a failure of a student kind of to other students, you know they look at the student, but to other professors they kind of look at their professor in in some mm -hmm. ways, and um, you know for to have a professor who can just be like it's fine, not make a big deal about it, like understand what it is, and just be able to help you move forward, I think is just a great thing. And I think mm -hmm. good mentors are just worth their weight in gold. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think I would be where I am now if it wasn't for my advisor. Um, granted, he's no longer at the university, but yeah. um, he got me to where I am now at this point. So I am very grateful. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Um, I am going to go to Instagram. I'm not going to go to Instagram. There are some questions that I uh, I had people submit for this interview. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, okay, so questions from Instagram. And thank you to everyone on Instagram who submitted a question. Um, you've touched on this a little bit, uh, but I think this is still a good question. Uh, in your experience, um, so this uh, this Instagram follower knows SPSS and in vivo and 
they're wanting to go industry, and so they're asking, what program do you think would be best to next learn to prepare for a career in industry, let's say, as a data analyst? Um, I think SPSS is great. I would not rely on that, though, just mm. because it is expensive. It does require license um, organizations. They might not have the money to spend on that, or they might not want to. Um, so if you can learn some kind of coding language, some open source software, I personally prefer R. Um, I don't know Python. I've heard it's pretty easy to learn. Um, it's popping up in, you know, job descriptions a lot, but one of the two, I don't think it matters which one, just whichever one you're more comfortable with and go with that. Um, if you've never done any kind of coding before, it can be a little daunting at first. There's a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but the good thing with R is that it's free to download. It's open source. You can quite literally Google anything and everything related to it and figure out what you're doing. Um, I would suggest if you've never done it before, maybe take a analysis that you've done in SPSS and then try to recreate it in R. Hmm. Um, you're going to yeah. have to do a lot of Googling and it might take a little bit, but it'll <laughs> it'll get you where you need to go. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And then you can know, you know, did you do it right? Did you get yeah. the same answer yep. again? So this also reminds me of something that came up in the previous podcast, and I didn't share it then. Um, but I learned to code. Well, I learned to code in high school, and then I forgot it. But in terms of stats packages, I learned to code actually with SPSS. And there's a function in SPSS, and I'm not going to remember what it is, but if folks out there want to look it up, they can Google it. There's a function in SPSS where... Uh, you know, most of the times you use the, the GUI or GUI, the graphic user interface. You just click around to make stuff happen. Mm -hmm. Well, in the menus, when you're setting up the different analyses, there's a button, I don't know, like paste or something, but it takes what you're putting into the graphics user interface and it creates code from it and it puts it into, I don't remember what the the code pages in SPSS are called or the code files, but it just automatically creates it into the code file. And then you can, you can highlight it and you can run it with that. And that's actually how I learned uh, in my master started to learn in my master's program and then in my PhD program, how to use code to run statistics. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a great, easy way to do it because you can still rely on the graphics user interface. You don't have to know the code in your head. Um, but then you can actually like see it on your screen and kind of like start making those connections of, oh, like, you know, this kind of part of the language refers to these things. And, you know, you'll have to get away from that at some point into something where you mm -hmm. actually are just straight up typing, of course. But um, yeah, I would do that, too. But it was more so I would save the syntax so that way I could replicate mm. what I was getting in my output without yeah. having to remember, did I click here? Did I do this? You know select all these options. It's just right there in your syntax. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next, uh, next question for you. What do you think you've touched on this a little bit, but, um, we'll see if we can get anything else from you. What do you think the best skills are to bolster while you're in grad school in order to get an industry position afterwards? Um, I just, I know I've already said it, but I really do think it is so important, but being able to take those complex ideas and, you know, bring it down into one, two sentences that anyone can understand. Mm. Um, I think that academics tend to have a um, very wordy and verbose way of communicating. Um, that was something that I had to <laughs> kind of unlearn. And now I'm kind of having to relearn as I do my dissertation. Mm. Um, but people don't, like in the real world, we don't want to read emails that are like three paragraphs long explaining why you found this effect. Like put it in bullet bullets. Like that's good. Um, you know, don't do those really long, complex correlation tables. And, you know, like don't like do the analysis for sure. Like make sure it's accurate. Do your due diligence there. But kind of unlearn all the things you've been taught about reporting it and just do it like you were trying to talk to like a 10 year old, like just make it very simple. Yeah. Makes so much sense. Yeah. And I, I feel like, um, I, I felt this when I became a research scientist and I also feel it now in this job, but 
when we're in academia, we're all like slightly overlapping in expertises. Um, you know, maybe this person studies cell growth and that person studies like things in the brain, but they may use some of the same, you know, foundations of statistics, or maybe they use some of the same programs to get their answers. And there, there's a lot of like, you know, inside baseball speak that everyone kind of has. And then when you get out in the real world and, you know, you let's say you're doing like a people analytics uh, presentation to the CEO of the company, he's not going to know any of that crap and he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to know any of it. He needs to know, you know, the, the three, you know, bulleted yep. answer or whatever. Um, what are the three things that he yeah. knows in order to make a decision mm -hmm. on the information that you're presenting? Because after he leaves the meeting with you, he's going to go into another meeting with mm -hmm. finance and then he's going to go into marketing and just quick, simple, easy, fast. Like that's what you got to do. Yeah. We love the minutia in academia and there certainly is a place for it, but not everyone has to love it. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, how, so this is another question from Instagram. Thanks to all those Instagrammers sending these in. How do you market yourself for jobs outside of academia when you've mostly been in academia? So I have not mostly been in academia, but I will say something that I've learned about myself as I've been working is that I am really, really motivated by my work having meaning and being useful. Um, I never really found that satisfaction in academia, you know, sitting in my ivory tower, writing these papers that are just going to go sit in journals that are not easily accessible because you have to either be a student and have that access for free through the library or you know, you have to pay out of your own pocket to get subscriptions to these journals. And like, people just don't do that in the real world. They don't read these papers. They don't, even if they did, they wouldn't know what you're talking about because again, you're using that really long, verbose, complicated language. Um, so something that I always say is like, that's the reason I got into data analysis is because I want to make a difference. I want my work to be meaningful and useful. And I have these skills that not everybody has, right? Like not everybody's going to grad school and not everybody's getting a PhD. If they did, you know, like it'd be easy. Everyone would have it. Um, and I think that has taken me far too, because people want to know that you are invested in the work and that you find purpose and meaning in the work that you're going to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, last question from Instagram. And we, we have covered this, so I'm going to change it just slightly. What are some practical tips on how to communicate your findings and your statistics to managers or leadership that just don't know that kind of material? Um, I would say typically leave the numbers out of it if you mm. can. We have at UKG, we have about 15,000 employees currently. Um, I think we're projected to grow a little bit more over the next year. So I'm dealing with a lot of data, a lot more data than I did when I was in grad school, right? Like most of our research is done via surveys and we might be lucky if we have, you know, a few hundred responses to our academic research. Um, but now I'm kind of like kid in a candy store. I have a playground with all of this data. Um, but that also means that a lot of the analyses that I run are going to tend to be statistically significant. So what I've learned to do is if it's statistically significant, lovely, great. You don't need to report like P is less than 0.05. You don't even mm. need to say that it's statistically significant um, unless someone asks you. But I also look a lot at effect sizes mm. and that will help me determine, you know, maybe it's like the ordering of certain things. If I'm looking at how, you know, a few different variables relate to turnover or performance and I have three or four that come out statistically significant. Lovely. Okay. Which ones have the biggest effect? I'm going to take that one and put it at the top and talk about that first, because again, back to our earlier example, like that CEO, he might be called out of the meeting. He might not even have the full 30 minutes to, you know, to spend to you and talk to you. So, you know, get the most important information out there first. Um, I think when you are presenting like PowerPoint slides, visuals, you can put some numbers, but like, don't put the correlations, don't put the actual statistical numbers. A lot of it, you know, put 
medians, put averages, put these like basic things that they'll tend to know. You can put sample sizes. That's a question they'll get asked a lot is like, oh, well, how many people were in this group? Um, but you don't, I know it might hurt your feelings at first because that's what we've been trained to do for so long is, you know, look at these regression weights, look at this, this, and this, look at them, but you know, don't report them, leave it out of the final product. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sydney. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about or say that we didn't already get to? Gosh, I don't know. Um, we talked about a lot. Yeah. I think I just want to reiterate that you are probably a lot more prepared for industry than you think that you are, if that's the path that you want to go to. Um, you know, analytics, technical skills, that's great. You're still going to have to learn more when you get there. Um, sorry, it's the way it is. Um, but you already have a lot of the great building blocks. You can take feedback, you can work with other people. Well, if you work in research labs, um, you are able to iterate on projects. Um, typically you're going to work well with other people. Like you already have the great fundamentals there. So you're going to be fine. Like I promise it's going to be okay. Yeah. That's great. All right. Before I ask you the final question, if folks want to get in contact with you or follow along, I feel like we've already said it, but it's LinkedIn, right? That's how you want folks to reach yeah, out to Yeah. LinkedIn you. will be the best way. It's just Sydney Cyber um, on LinkedIn. Okay. Yep. Great. And I'll be sure to include that in the description of this episode. So you can just scroll down and click and people can go to it. All right, Sydney, uh, last question for you. What is the one thing that grad students should do before they graduate? Oh, um, go have a crazy wild time. <laughs> I think a lot of us just, you know, we're so focused on work and papers and getting things done. Like go be crazy for a day, a week, a weekend, like whatever you want, just go have some fun. You know, life is too short to be so serious all the time. In my opinion, you know, we have one life to live and that's it. So make sure that you have some fun. Yeah. Wise words. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sydney. This has been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'd love to stay in touch and I will talk to you later. Yeah, sounds good. See ya. All right. See ya. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of my interview with Sydney today. It was awesome to hear her talk about her career in industry and hear about the steps that grad students like you can take to prepare for industry work. Be sure to check out the description of today's episode for a link to Sydney's LinkedIn page. And if you did enjoy today's episode, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does mean a lot to me as a content creator when folks leave ratings and written reviews for the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great podcast episode next week. As promised, here are Sydney's responses to the bonus questions. See you all next time. So first question, Sydney, what is your spirit animal? Oh, that's easy. Um, I'm a total horse girl, so it would definitely be a horse. I've been riding horses since I was five years old and I still ride them to this day. So that is awesome. Hands down. Where are you located? If you don't mind my asking. I'm in Atlanta. Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. I'm in in Lexington, Kentucky. So horses are very much a thing here. Horses all the time. I've driven through Lexington a few times, but never actually like stopped there to enjoy it. So maybe one day. Yeah, uh, that's funny. My wife is actually going to Atlanta right now with some of her friends for some like music event. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to live in Athens, so oh yeah. Uh, so I went to UGA too for undergrad. Oh, yeah. So we have that in common too. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Loved Athens. Great city. Mm-hmm. Uh, Atlanta is very cool too. Um, second question is what would you say your real life superpower is oh my real life superpower um that's a tough one usually people ask like what's your favorite superhero um mine is definitely spider-man but i think with my real life superpower i think i'm just i'm pretty chill you know i get along with most people um 
I like most people. So <laughs> that might be my real life superpower. It's a great one. Okay. Uh, last question. If you could teleport anywhere in the world at any time you wanted, but it had to be the same place every time, and you could teleport back to wherever you were before, whenever you wanted, what would that place be? Uh, same place over and over. Um, so I guess it would probably have to be between Atlanta and Seattle because I have family out in Seattle. I don't get to mm, see them yeah. all that often just because it's quite literally the other corner of the country. Um, so yeah, Atlanta, Seattle, my mom's down here, my dad's up there. So probably make the most sense. Yeah. Very cool. 